Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Dr. Lee Warren uh, served as a combat brain surgeon for the U.S. Air Force in Iraq. Uh, We've talked with him about his experience there. He described his deployment as a time of personal crisis. He faced not only the very grueling work of being uh, combat medical personnel, but he also had a crumbling marriage at the time and a serious illness of a family member uh, back on the home front. Um, he said his faith in God was in a shambles at the time, and he began to see eventually how the Lord was working in his life. And that story is told in his book, No Place to Hide. In fact, uh, Dr. Warren and I talked about uh, that experience a few years ago. And I should mention, No Place to Hide was named uh, in 2015 to the U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff's uh, professional reading list. Now, he's entered really uh, in his newest book. He kind of enters a different era. The book is called, I've Seen the End of You, A Neurosurgeon's Look at Faith, Doubt, and the Things We Think We Know. And I'm glad to be joined once again by Dr. Lee Warren, brain surgeon, inventor, Iraq War veteran, and writer. Dr. Warren, good to have you back. Hey, Al. Thanks for having me back on the show. It's good to talk to you again. Uh, I think we'll start right with the title of the book because uh, it's a, by the way, it's a very catching, uh, very riveting title. So good choice. I've seen the end of you. What is the meaning of that title? Well, this came from a conundrum that I had over the course of my career as a neurosurgeon. There's a there's a tumor, a brain tumor, a brain cancer called glioblastoma multiform. We call it GBM for short. It's easier to say. Mm-hmm. But GBM is a devastating brain cancer, and it's a, a very common tumor in adults. And it has a essentially 100% fatality rate. The five-year survival is almost zero. Ten-year survival is is really practically zero. Um, And the average survival is only about 15 months. And so when I would meet a patient with this diagnosis, even before I met them, sometimes I would see the scan, the MRI, and I would say to myself, I know what's going to happen to this person. I've seen the end of this person. Just project out in my mind all of the things that I could see uh, the, the biopsy, the diagnosis, the conversation, the chemotherapy, the radiation, when they would stop eating, you know, when they would go into hospice, when they would die. And I could just see that forecasted out in front of them because mm-hmm. this disease is so predictable. And yet at the same time, as a Christian, the Bible tells me to pray without ceasing right. and to believe that God can heal and to never stop uh, trusting that God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. And, and so I had this problem. How do I sit down and, and tell a patient to fight and to pray from my faith when science tells me that the answer is always no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this this was the question that really drives you. How do you, you believe in, how can you pray honestly? How can you counsel them to hang in there when in fact you already know that there's going to be a negative answer to that prayer? And uh, you know that basically the death sentence has been read to them because GBM, That's right. you say it's known as the brain assassin, which is, yep. again, um, it's the most malignant, mutated, destructive form of human cancer, you write. Um, yep. Now, how many years 
Was that the question that was plaguing you? Oh, really for years. You know, I, I started my training in neurosurgery in 1995, finished in 2001, and then um, didn't start writing this book until, you know, 2014 or so. Okay. Um, so I kind of grappled with it for years before I finally uh, came to writing it. You you finally concluded, and again, there's a, I want to stress, there's a tremendous amount of very um, pointed and poignant and revealing storytelling throughout this this book. But eventually, you conclude that um, that you're asking the wrong question there. Um, That's right. And the real question is what? Well, I mean, the real question is how do we live the life that we have? before us, not how do we um, fight for more time in this body or for more time in this life. It's about moving the goalposts. And, you know, I I came to realize I'm getting ahead of myself in the story here, but basically just came to an understanding that our life is not a series of events of things that happen to us. Our life really is defined by how we respond to those things. And so learning how to counsel patients to, to look at their life um, in a different way, even if we couldn't control the length of it, uh, really it's what changed my ability to doctor these people. Yeah. And did you find that in counseling you were more comfortable in your relationship with them after you changed the question? A- absolutely. Yeah. Um, changed everything because, you know, it, it's no longer a matter of, oh, there's nothing I can do for you, to how can I help the quality of this particular patient's life be as high as it can be yeah. uh, in every measurable way for the remainder of it. Yeah, yeah. How, how you can help people, and also how they can hold on to their faith when it gets when it gets real bad. Um, that's right. Or sometimes even find it when they didn't have it before. Yes, that's right. That's right. In fact, you tell the story of Joey in the book. Can you give us a thumbnail yeah. sketch of Joey? Yeah, Joey's a great example of a person who he was kind of a down and out um, person that you might somebody might call him a loser, and you know, he was a a drug addict, a a kid whose dad abandoned him. His mom died when he was young, and he was um, sort of a drug dealer and just kind of a sort of a bad person, if you can put quotes around that, Mm -hmm. um, in your mind. And he had an encounter with a a law enforcement officer in which he got kind of cracked in the head and ended up with a skull fracture. So when I met him, it was in the emergency department um, having to deal with this fractured skull and I took him to surgery and he's got some bleeding in his brain and I discover in the midst of the bleeding, he also had a brain tumor oh. previously undiagnosed. And it was fortunate for him because this was a very early stage tumor and removing it oftentimes is enough to cure it when if it's already turned into a glioblastoma, those people don't really ever survive. So I saw that as a blessing for him, but at the time that I met him, he didn't see it that way. He, he saw his whole life as a, a stream of you know bad things happening to him. He was enraged and bitter. And but the story unfolds over time, where he encounters the Lord, really through his grandmother and through a chaplain, and ends up, even though his cancer comes back. I don't want to give away the whole story, but basically he says, the last year of his life was his best year ever yeah, because he great. found hope, he found joy, he found peace from knowing the Lord in spite of having malignant brain cancer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a complete reversal of attitude uh, from when you met him. Yep. Wow. Um, 
you tell the, you talk about your own changes really through your interaction with key uh, patients. Uh, there's Samuel, there's Rupert, uh, there's Eli, um, there's a young woman who commits suicide here. And were you, as you were going through your uh, relationship with them, were you aware at the time of how you were changing? Yeah, I, I don't think I was fully aware of it because at, at that time, at that point, I was still thinking that I was sort of studying these people and trying to learn and understand how to be a better doctor to them. Um, but I wasn't experiencing grief and loss and pain with them. I was I was watching them and studying them and learning from them and trying to use that to help them. So I, I think it was later in my life when I really realized that I was in that boat with them. Mm-hmm. You, uh, how important was the realization that, uh, oh, the realization you had with Eli, did that change everything for you? It really did. Eli was the, you know, the, the, the line in my title, the things we think we know, Yeah. that comes down to, um, it's sort of a double entendre in a way that, you know, part of it is, I thought I knew a lot about this disease. I thought I knew everything about it, and I thought I knew how Eli would find his uh, maker, meet his maker. Um, but Eli is my only ten-year survivor of this disease in my career, <laughs> wow. and he's still alive. And so just, <laughs> you learn that you don't always know everything. You know, I mean, physicians learn that lesson all the time. But this in, in glioblastoma, this is the only time I'd ever seen somebody who so far seems to have survived and beaten this disease. And so I learned, um, I learned the medical side of that question. Um, I don't always know everything. And then the flip side of it is the, the, the sort of battle that we think is between faith and doubt often really is that it's between faith and the things that we thought we knew. Because yeah. when you think you know that your wife will always be faithful or that you're going to be healthy or that your kids will outlive you or that your bank account will never go dry if you think you know those things and your hope is built on those things that can be taken away from you then if something happens and those things turn out not to be true it can really shatter your faith yeah. it can really destroy your world that's what jesus was talking about when he said the wise man builds his house on the rock because the rock doesn't you know is, isn't prone to being washed away right. when the storm comes mm-hmm. yeah um, in fact, you're right. Uh, of the three things that affect how we view the world, faith, doubt, and the things we think we know, doubt would seem to be the most harmful, at least on the surface. surface. But uh, I've learned that doubt is not the enemy of faith. The enemy of faith is often the things we think we know. Um, I, I, I assume all of us have those kind of uh uh, problems. Uh, you, you, they're kind of a cataract on the soul, I think is what uh, mm-hmm. you describe them. Let's talk about, about that again. Are these assumptions that we make, these things we think we know? Are they really? I think they are. Yeah. yeah. I think they are, and I think that's why we so often find ourselves saying things like, how could a loving God let this happen? How right. could God allow this to occur in my life? Or, you know, how could... Um, if God's real, how could such and such occur? How could X, Y, and Z come to pass? Because the fact is, God never promised us a pain-free life. And so, in fact, he promised us the opposite. Jesus said, in this world, yeah. you will have trouble. Yeah. But take heart, I've overcome the world, right? So he, it's funny how we, we think we 
can expect, almost demand some things. And there's some branches of Christianity that would tell you that you can demand certain things from God. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, everybody that lives long enough is going to encounter disease and disability and death. Because that's that's why there's a resurrection, right? That's right, why there's right. an eternity. And so if you if you think you know a lot of things and your hope or your faith is built on those things being true, then they better be things that can't be taken from you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think, uh, well, we'll come back and, and pick it up from there because uh, I loved the book, by the way, although I have to say it was really challenging. Um I, I found myself, uh, my, uh, my imagination was flaring up through the whole thing. It, but uh, I want to come back and talk a little bit about this whole expectation we have that life should go well for us uh, and how insulted we are when it doesn't. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Lee Warren. His recent book is I've Seen the End of You. A neurosurgeon's look at faith, doubt, and the things we think we know. Um, I, my, I know it's early in the year, but my suspicion is that this is going to be uh, one of the most uh, consequential books that I'll read this year. Uh, I found myself grappling with it uh, throughout, and uh, it's incredibly edifying, but it, it will challenge you. And I think... Uh, I realized, even with myself, who I tend to think of, I tend to think of myself as fairly practical, realistic guy, I found myself uh, reading through the book and recognizing that uh, I think I have approached uh, life expecting that the normal, that normal, normally things are supposed to go well. And even as a Christian, I, I think I've often forgotten that we're living really in a spiritual combat zone. Um, the, world, right. the, world, the world's full of death and destruction and hunger and unmet needs, and yet I'm still insulted when I actually get hit by the, the, fall, the sin's fallout. And um, so somehow I should be exempt from what all human beings are subject to. Um, and one of those things is uh, un what we call unanswered prayer, or when God says no. You point to the Son of God in Gethsemane as where we ought to look when we're grappling with this question. Why don't you lay that out for us? Well, I, I just I've always thought about the scene in the garden, you know, right before Christ goes to the cross. Even though he's known for all eternity, like Jesus has known before they ever lit the spark on the earth and humanity, that he was going to have to die to pay for our sins. But yet, in his humanity, right before he goes to the cross, he prays, take this cup from me. Yeah. You know, take this away, God. I don't want to go through this. And he, even though he knows the answer is going to be no to that prayer, because he knows that we have no hope if he doesn't go through with the plan, he still prays it. And it's that, it's that moment of perfect humanity where he acknowledges that he doesn't want to go through what he's about to go through, and the only way to, to possibly get a, an answer would be to pray about it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so if Jesus can come to that moment where, he, where he's asking God for something that he knows God isn't going to do, that's a good example for us, that we should never, there's nothing that we shouldn't lay before him in prayer, nothing we shouldn't be willing to ask and talk to him about. 
And that's where I learned in the processing of that from my friend, the chaplain, um, who told me, you know, prayer is not about you getting your answer and your answer being yes. That's not what your prayer is about. Prayer is not about bending God's will to your will. It's about bending your will to God's will. And that sort of shattered things for me, sort of opened things up for me to say, wow, you know, when I'm praying for my patients, it's not let them survive this. I do pray that, and I will continue to pray. Mm-hmm. But it's let them come alive. Let them let them find something valuable to hold on to. Let their families improve. Let their spirit get stronger, no matter what the circumstance is that they're going to pass through here. Yeah. Um, you've seen an un- unusual amount of tough stuff. Um, I'm, I think in our previous conversation, you had mentioned the the line from uh, All Quiet on the Western Front that war ruins us for everything. Um, mm-hmm. t- talk to me about that. Uh, would you you'd be you wouldn't be the man you are today if you hadn't been uh, working uh, as medical combat personnel? Would you? Absolutely not. No, I mean, on top of the effects that it had on me as a surgeon, you know, I grew up a lot as a surgeon because of that uh, that experience. Yeah. But as a as a person, like I literally, I was such a control freak that I, I've sort of half joked that I think God had to send me to a place where I was going to get mortared and rocketed and bombed and and just driven to my knees before I gave up the notion that I could control my own life. You know, that I had to depend on God to get me through that. And, and so the, it was a blessing that I got to go and it changed how I look at patient care and my family and all that. And the, the, the curse is that like they, like they said, in, in uh, all quiet on the Western front, the curse is it changes how you process things emotionally. It changes how um, you see the world and your sense of safety and, and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you came back and you you managed uh, after some big changes. Of course, you went through a lot. Uh, you did manage to kind of reintegrate and actually go on to be a leader and a force for healing in other people's lives. Um, I think one of the 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 book is powerful, and I didn't know. As I'm reading through it, and I'm going through the stories, the little kind of case studies that you give and the profiles of the people, I mean, I was right at the edge of my um, ability to (laughs) stand it. And then you disclose that you lost a son. That's right. While you were writing this book? Yeah, so, yes. um, so, you know, like I told you, I was I was studying people and how they grieve and how they handle hard things. And, and I was trying to write a book that I could use to share what I'd learned about helping people navigate hard things. And then on a, you know, on a Tuesday in August in 2013, our 19-year-old son was stabbed to death and our world just sort of fell apart. And I went from observing other people's troubles to being kind of in that, in the, pit of despair in the in the furnace of suffering that Isaiah talked about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, you're, you're observing others. Now you're suffering in a similar manner. I mean, it's extraordinary loss. And 
if I recall correctly, you didn't even really get a very good explanation for what happened to Mitch. No, we we didn't. We don't. Um, we won't ever know. Really, it was a small town, and um, my son and his best friend were both dead in the house with stab wounds, and and you know the the police basically made a very cursory examination and came to some conclusions that we can't accept as a family, and you know put it out in the media and, and all of this. But the the end of the day, they cleaned the crime scene removed the bodies in an hour, didn't call in the FBI or anybody to really criminally investigate it and basically shut it down and we can't know. Um, So it was sort of like God gave us this impossible scenario where not only did we lose our child, but we can't know how it happened, we can't know why it happened, and there's no possibility that we ever will. And so that had it was sort of like God just said, you've just got to trust that I can get you through this, and you can't demand answers from me because there aren't any to be had. Yeah, yeah. You write in the book, my experience with all the tumor patients, trauma victims, and personal tragedy that you faced, you say, it's shown me something, um, something I'd missed before. You get good stuff mixed in with a lot of pain, or you get nothing. It's your choice. And the choice is to take it or leave it. The trick is to be able to live happily and with purpose, even during those tough times. Uh, Then you go over a list of those who you've seen in the life of Samuel and Rupert and Joey. Uh, That that is, uh, I, I suspect most people would find that to be a little grim, uh, and they would prefer to not acknowledge uh, that. I mean, we want to get through our pain, right? I mean, it, it get o- get over with it so we can get on with normal life. And yet, you're arguing that a mature Christian needs to live with the understanding that we get good stuff, but it's with a lot of pain, and we don't. We have a choice. We can accept life that way, or, well, we can end it. Well, that's right. I mean, I, I wrote about that in the context of a, a young woman who committed suicide. Yeah, you know, had a had a bad relationship and a, and a particularly bad night, and drank too much and put a gun to her head, and, yeah. and it came down to the idea that, you know, she couldn't accept the life that she had with all the painful things in it, and she couldn't see that there was a possibility of it getting better. And so I wrote about that Hobson's choice, that yeah. old conundrum of the, there was a, there was an in, a stable keeper in England named Hobson. And he got tired of the kids renting out the best horses and leaving the, the worst ones behind and the, and the best horses would get worn out. So he made a deal in his stable where you got the horse closest to the door or you got nothing. You can take <laughs> it or leave it. And so that was Hobson's choice. You can have a horse, but it's the one I'm going to tell you that you can have. And that's really what life is, right? right. Yes. God says, I will give you eternal life. And Jesus said, I came to give you an abundant life in your physical body. I came. The thief comes to steal and kill, kill and destroy in John 10, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And he's talking about now. So the only way you can make sense out of that from the same Jesus who tells you, that life's going to be hard in this world you will have trouble 
is to say that the circumstances of our lives are not supposed to rob us of our joy. Right. They're not supposed to rob us of our peace and our ability to see the light again. And so that's really the fact, Al, is that your parents are going to die someday. God forbid, but one of your children or some of your children might die. And if you're married, you or your spouse are likely, one of you is likely to pass away before the other. There's going to be hard stuff in this life. And if you're not ready for that, or if you're unwilling to accept it, then you just can't, there's no path forward that's pain-free. And so the, the trick has to be, how can we be able to live meaningful lives, purpose-filled lives, lives of, of peace and joy, even with hard things happening? Yeah. And I've, as I've studied these folks that get brain cancer and other, other problems, and as I've walked now almost seven years as a bereaved father, I've learned that the secret is to is you've got to decouple circumstance from your emotional state. So you've got to be able to say, yes, this bad thing happened, but God can redeem that and use it for something that's going to make it have meaning. Mm-hmm. That Romans eight twenty eight promise comes true with enough time and perspective that you'll see there's some good that God can still do in your life despite these hard things that have yeah. occurred. Yeah, and the great good that that. Romans 8.28 promise uh, is pointing towards is our ultimate conformity to Christ, right? That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Because yeah. that's how we can have a hope for an eternity. Yeah. Which if you're a bereaved parent, I mean, for me, the only the only way I can keep going is knowing that I'll get to see my son again someday. Mm-hmm. That I'll get mm-hmm. to see him in his redeemed state and, and get to be with him in a joy-filled environment again. And that's that's what makes me able to take that next step. Yeah. Yeah, very, very good. Um, I, I I hope you're continuing to write, because this is great stuff. Yeah. What's coming next? Thank you. Well, I'm working on actually sort of a toolkit um, to take all these things I've learned and help people use them in their own lives. Um, this idea of sort of self-brain surgery, you know, how you <laughs> um, can learn how to change how you think about things and yeah. how you look at them. Um and I'm uh, I'm tinkering with uh, this sort of idea of teaching people how to sort of operate on their own minds. Wow. Well, I'll look forward to it. Uh, Lee, thanks so much. It was wonderful being with you again. And again, this I I really uh, I really hope this book gets wide readership. Uh, I think it's a very it's a consequential volume. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you, Al. God bless, Dr. Lee Warren. I've seen the end of you, a neurosurgeon's look at faith, doubt, and the things we think we know. It's wonderfully written, it's colorful, it's profound, and it will be edifying. 